0: Cultures from the ancient Greeks and ancient Egyptians onward have sometimes considered being overweight, not ideal, and in some cases even considered it to be a medical condition. But it wasn't until the 17th century that it became viewed, in some circles at least, as a kind of social disease, something that we need to address as opposed to just a trait born by some people and not by others. People of different weights existed for all different sorts of reasons and in some cases it was associated with wealth and royalty and thus celebrated and romanticized and even sexualized and in other cases it was the opposite, associated with maladies, physical imperfection, laziness, sloth, and even illness or disease. Most cultures have probably fit somewhere between these extremes, considering obesity to be a generally neutral sort of thing, though perhaps rocking back and forth on extreme versions of it. The same as a culture might sometimes view extreme thinness as aesthetically pleasing and sometimes consider it to be not attractive or even to be some kind of horrible affliction. The Oxford English Dictionary's first documented usage of the term obesity comes from 1611, the term derived from a Latin originator word, obesitas, which means stout, fat, or plump. This term didn't become medicalized until later, though. In its modern incarnation, the term obesity is usually differentiated from terms like fat by presumed objectivity. To call someone fat is to make a subjective judgment, comparing them, sometimes unfavorably, sometimes morally neutrally, to other people you know, or perhaps yourself, in terms of weight or visual bigness, while the term obesity is generally applied with a more medical, ostensibly objective purpose. That objectivity is hindered a bit by the fluffiness of the science behind one of the key metrics typically used to objectively compare people in this way. The Body Mass Index, or BMI, attempts to provide a framework for determining when someone has an appropriate amount of body fat for their overall body structure, their height, their skeleton, the width of their overall frame, that sort of thing. And it does this by using a ratio of their weight to their height. In pro-medical circles, this metric has been replaced by another measurement model, body fat percentage, which stems from a ratio of a person's total body fat weight and their overall weight. And BMI is meant to provide a rough approximation of this same measure, but is much easier to check without fancy equipment. It's not simple or cheap in some contexts to determine the weight of a person's body fat, as that requires special gear. While having someone stand on a scale and using some measuring tape to check their height couldn't be easier. So BMI is widely used and is meant to get as close to a person's body fat percentage as possible, while body fat percentage is not as widely used, but is far more accurate for the intended outcome. But BMI, despite its common usage, does not work well for everyone, sometimes getting nowhere close to their body fat percentage measurement. And its use varies from place to place, with different measurers using different cutoffs for determining who is labeled normal, who's overweight, and who is at a midpoint between normal and obese, and who's clinically obese, according to their BMI figure. Also worth mentioning is that a healthy amount of body fat compared to overall weight and height and so on varies from group to group and person to person. So even the best measures we have for this ratio can sometimes seem to tell us all kinds of things about health that aren't really applicable in every situation. All of which is to say, this method is meant to be more objective, and in many ways, it is more objective than just looking at someone and deciding that they are overweight or not. But that intended and implied objectivity can sometimes obscure the flaws in this overall approach, and can miss serious health issues in people who seem to be outwardly healthy-looking, who seem to be skinny or fit, by the dominant standards of many cultures anyway, while inflating the perceived health risks faced by other people, by folks who might show up as obese according to this measurement, or who look bigger than other people, but who are actually quite healthy and even fit by most other measures. What I'd like to talk about today is obesity, some new drugs and treatments that are becoming available for obesity, and why those drugs and treatments, and some potential near-future use cases, are becoming a bit controversial. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled New Guidelines Underscore How Complicated Childhood Obesity Is for Patients and Providers. Before I get into the details of those new guidelines, let's talk for a moment about what's been happening in the obesity drug space. Beginning in the late 1800s, a slew of so-called diet pills popped up around the world, though with particular enthusiasm, in urban European areas and in the US, as part of what became known as the patent medicine era, which was defined in part by the arrival of a deluge of new treatments, many of them snake oil. They just didn't work or didn't do what they were supposed to do, and many of them dangerous in their composition or use, while a bare few actually did something, but often with wild and deleterious side effects. These medicines became popular because of newly liberalized policies that allowed them to be sold at a profit, and the diet pills made available during this era were often based on thyroid extract, which among other things can up a person's metabolic rate, which in turn can make them lose weight in some cases. That potential weight loss, unfortunately, would often also be paired with weird heart behaviors like a regular heartbeat, an unstoppably racing heart, high blood pressure, overall weakness, and other similar afflictions. It just wasn't safe, basically, and was more or less the artificial introduction of what's called hyperthyroidism, which is something that we today medicate away post-haste, because it's very dangerous and uncomfortable and panic-inducing with good reason. Headed into the early to mid-20th century, a substance called dinitrophenol, sometimes called DNP, which was commonly used as an ingredient in explosives, but which was also used off-label by Soviet forces during World War II to help make them more resistant to cold. That cold resistance was the consequence of DNP's tendency to substantially increase a user's metabolic rate, so similar in some ways to the thyroid extract pills of yore, but via a different chemical mechanism. Specifics aside though, DNP would also often lead to hyperthermia, someone cooking to death basically, alongside the heightened risk of developing cataracts and other ailments. Thus, although DNP did tend to lead to weight loss in the 100,000 or so people who took drugs based on it, the first year it was available for weight loss purposes in 1933, and it is today still sometimes used by severe risk-tolerant bodybuilders, by the way, but by the end of 1938, it was taken off the market, the FDA calling it so toxic that it couldn't even be safely used under a doctor's direct supervision. It's worth noting here, too, that this substance is prone to spontaneously exploding when not handled correctly. So yeah, the things we do to lose weight. The mid-20th century also brought us amphetamines, which became the go-to weight loss substance for many as they were widely available and also used throughout the war, mostly to keep soldiers alert after a long day's march while on boring patrols or while on watch throughout the night. Unfortunately, while amphetamines are not prone to exploding spontaneously, they are very addictive and can lead to all sorts of negative neurological effects. Sometimes these were paired with diuretics, thyroid hormones of the patent medicine variety, and barbiturates, depressants basically, to help counter the hyperalertness and jitteriness that could otherwise result from the overstimulating amphetamines. Next came the drugs Phentermine and Phenfluramine, or fenfen, when paired together, in the 1970s. Though this duo really took off in the 1990s, after a researcher showed that when taken in tandem, they could reduce one's weight by about 10% for about two years. This became the most widely used diet medication regimen ever, though it was partially replaced by dexfenfluramine, or Redux, in the mid-1990s because it did basically the same thing, but with somewhat fewer side effects. Those side effects, though, once more, were the real Achilles' heel of this treatment, as there was growing evidence, which arrived around the same time that Redux hit the market, that this diet-drug combination was causing valvular heart disease in something like a third of the people who took it, alongside massively heightened risk for fatal pulmonary hypertension, heart valve damage, and hemorrhagic stroke. Ephedra, which had started to fill the economic gap left by FenFen when it was banned in 1997, despite being seemingly healthier in some vague way because it was plant derived and used in traditional medicinal practice around the world, caused similar adverse effects in users, ranging from heart problems to seizures to dizziness to insomnia and skin problems, and yes, even death. All of which is to say we have long been looking for a pill-based solution to obesity, or even just to lose some fat that we wish we weren't carrying. And we've been willing to put up with a lot, including the very real risk of actual death, even the being spontaneously blown up or cooked from the inside type of death in this pursuit. Nothing we've come up with yet has allowed us to take a pill even regularly, even based on all natural ingredients, and lose weight and keep it off, and to do so without suffering other major, perhaps permanent, consequences to our health as a result. That is, it would seem, maybe, possibly, until now. There was a useful piece in Nature recently called The Breakthrough Obesity Drugs That Have Stunned Researchers that dove into the studies that have been done into a new class of drugs thus far. And it would seem that we may, for some people anyway, finally have a pill-based or pill-like based solution in the sense that you can just take it and enjoy the benefits rather than having to work out or undergo some type of surgery, that does a lot of what we were hoping those old, ultra-dangerous drugs would do for us. And they would seem to be able to do this for us relatively safely, though with some caveats. One of the major caveats is that success in this case looks like slightly more than one-third of test subjects, human test subjects by the way, not mice, Were able to reduce their body weight by at least 20% by receiving weekly injections of a drug for not quite 16 months. An earlier study into these drugs saw similar results in adults, and a more recent one showed this outcome with teenagers, which is a notoriously difficult group for this type of treatment, for a slew of mostly chemical and growth-related reasons. This injection was paired with some lifestyle changes, but nothing too wild, and is partially predicated on the discovery of a hormone called leptin, which is produced by our fat tissue to induce a feeling of being full. The researcher who discovered it was trying to figure out why a batch of lab mice couldn't seem to stop themselves from eating, no matter how much they ate and how obese, even dangerously so, they became. He discovered that this batch wasn't receiving a standard volume of leptin after eating, which means their bodies were not signaling them correctly after they'd had enough to eat, and even more than enough food to eat, to sustain themselves. By giving them leptin supplements, he was able to get them back into a healthy eating routine, because they could now tell they were full, and were no longer plagued by that subconscious sense of needing to seek out and consume ever more food. This research lined up with parallel research into how to regulate blood glucose levels as part of a larger effort to understand and treat type 2 diabetes, In the early 2000s, the FDA, the US's drug regulation agency, started to approve drugs that enhanced insulin production and reduced blood sugar for use as a type of diabetes treatment. And researchers noticed along the way that folks in the clinical trials for those drugs tended to also lose weight. These drugs seemed to help people moderate their appetite while also slowing digestion in the gut, which allowed people to feel pleasantly full faster, reducing the amount of food they felt compelled to consume. Out of all that earlier research emerged several drugs that had similar effects, which then fed into the development of a new drug of the same type, semaglutide which finished up a phase three trial, the phase where the drug is tried out on a lot of different test subjects to make sure it's broadly safe and effective on many different types of people, not just a small group that happened to be involved in previous smaller trials. And that trial blew researchers away with results that implied this drug worked similarly to those other ones, but stuck around in the body longer, so its effects were more defined and long-lasting. What's more, this drug was already approved for treating diabetes, so it was a pretty well-known, safe bet. The risks were small, and the biggest concern amongst those involved, including regulators, was how things might change socially if a drug of this kind, which works so well in helping people cut back on body fat, becomes widely available. In particular, might it accidentally increase stigma against those who are outwardly obese-looking? Might it heighten the negative psychological effects sometimes experienced by people who suffer from negative self-image, from weight-related bullying, or from social standards that tell them they're not attractive or good enough? Worth noting, too, is that there's another drug, terzepatide. That was approved in 2022 for type 2 diabetes, and which might soon, maybe as soon as April of 2023, also be approved for weight loss purposes. That can have even more significant effects of this kind, more weight loss over the same period of time compared to semaglutide, using basically the same approach of just helping people feel full faster and more accurately, rather than trying to up their metabolism or otherwise mess with stuff that might screw with the function, Functionality of their heart or larger cardiovascular system. There are questions as to whether this weight loss will be maintainable by patients using lifestyle changes, or if they'll need to remain on these drugs forever if they want to keep that weight off. But it does seem like rather than introducing new health issues, these drugs actually, by preventing the buildup of excess body fat in this way, they provide a slew of health benefits. The benefits typically associated with having a healthier, for one's specific body type, level of body fat. So people using these drugs generally see their cardiovascular systems improve, not get worse. Though it's important to note here that additional body fat-related weight does not always lead to worsened health outcomes or bad cardiovascular systems. About 30% of people considered to be clinically obese, according to some research, are perfectly healthy metabolically. They just happen to carry more fat than some other people. So results will vary on the health improvement component of this drug, but that is a nice thing to see. After so many generations of fat reduction medications and approaches, that tend to do the opposite, tend to hurt one's cardiovascular system rather than help it. And all of that, the availability of those new, highly effective, and seemingly quite safe drugs, and the potential social consequences of them, brings us back around to that Times piece on new childhood obesity guidelines. The American Academy of Pediatrics, which is a group of pediatric professionals who help set regulations and policies related to child health care in the United States, and as a consequence of that for many countries globally, has released new guidance on evaluating and treating children who are overweight or obese. This new guidance says, in essence, that obesity should not just be treated as the consequence of personal choice, but rather the result of personal choices plus environmental and genetic influences, with the latter two components often being the more impactful. So while we technically decide whether or not to eat junk food all the time, in some cases our financial circumstances, the availability of healthful or non-healthful food, the influence and habits of our parents, and our genetics, nudge us toward food choices more so than rational decision making. Two people can make the same food choices and have wildly different health and obesity outcomes. And two people can have similar genetics but live in different neighborhoods, with different families and different family lives, with different food options and economic circumstances shaping those food options, which can also lead to very different health and obesity outcomes. Rather than blaming people who are obese for their obesity, then, doctors, this guidance suggests. Should treat obesity more like asthma, which is the consequence of environmental factors and family life and genetics and possibly even personal choices like deciding whether to smoke as well. Doctors don't typically criticize or belittle or judge patients for having asthma though, they help them treat it with some lifestyle changes plus often drugs or other treatments. And that's how they should behave with patients who have obesity as well. That portion of this new guidance has itself been controversial, as we still don't have a 100% full understanding of obesity, the causes and outcomes, and everything else related to it. So some doctors and commentators, especially those who are big on the personal choice side of this argument, who basically believe we just need to get people to stop being lazy and making bad choices about food and fitness, and that will solve all of these societal health problems we face, they are not crazy about this advice. The second new piece of guidance was even more controversial, though, as it recommends that instead of delaying obesity treatment in children, hoping things will change and that such treatment won't be necessary later, instead of that, this guidance says it is prudent to offer patients intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment programs alongside, in some cases, weight loss drugs or surgery for children who are already clinically obese at a young age. The theory is that because obesity is a complex thing with a lot of moving parts tied to variables like genetics and environmental factors that are unlikely to change substantially anytime soon, it is worth tackling this type of issue sooner rather than later, because later, permanent health damage will be likely caused during that period of delay. So by this logic, it makes sense to work on this stuff earlier so as to avoid that damage and instill whatever habits can be instilled while making tweaks to those variables wherever possible. Which, viewed through the lens of behavior and lifestyle programs that teach parents how to feed their kids more healthily and kids how to control their eating, isn't a huge deviation from how things are done now, except these programs would be offered sooner. The drugs, through some lenses at least, are also strangely not as controversial in some circles as you might think they would be, as these drugs, again, are highly effective, for some people at least, and have very moderate side effects, if any, in most patients. So a kid taking a pill or getting a shot that helps them control their eating, that could lead to some uncomfortable issues later if the pill or shot is required for them to keep that habit going long term, as that is a type of drug reliance. But really, kids are given a lot of medications already. And while some people are assiduously against giving their kids anything if they can avoid it, others, not so much. It's just part of what we do for our kids to help them stay healthy in an otherwise unhealthy modern world. Now again, think about allergy pills and shots and things like that. We help kids who have asthma with this same sort of approach, so why not use it with other health issues that are beyond their full control as well? The surgery thing, though, has raised a lot of eyebrows. The surgery in question would only be recommended for a subset of children who are showing signs of both obesity and the likelihood for continued obesity throughout life. And it would be recommended for kids possibly as young as 12 years old. And the type of surgery we're talking about is called bariatric surgery, which essentially means cutting out a piece of the child's gut and shrinking it, which in turn tends to allow them to feel full faster, controlling those same cravings that the drugs help control. An additional complexity to this issue, right now at least, is that for most people, the drugs will not be an option. Insurance does not cover them right now, and they can cost somewhere around $1,000 a month for at least 16 months and possibly longer. But insurance does typically cover the surgery, So parents facing this choice will be offered these options, which should provide similar outcomes, but with the surgical option being most attainable to most people. And surgery is a bit more grim a thing to face, especially when you're thinking about doing it to kids possibly as young as 12 years old. And especially if you look at this through the lens of it being a potentially somewhat aesthetic outcome that you're hoping to achieve as opposed to it being a health outcome, which is the lens that some people will use to view this despite the many potential positive health outcomes that would be associated with that type of process. So if the drugs are less accessible except to the wealthy, what does that mean for the casual application and use of this type of treatment? Will the rich suddenly slim down as a demographic? Will this become yet another social indicator of economic class? And more broadly, what does the world look like if and when these sorts of drugs and treatments go mainstream? Yes, it could significantly improve health outcomes for the duration of people's lives and reduce strain on significantly overburdened healthcare programs globally, But more immediately, and at the ground level, what does it feel like for the only kid in class whose parents didn't choose for him to get the drug or surgery? How might this impact cultural perceptions of beauty and body standards? Might it make things even worse for people who are larger, who just happen to have more body fat, but who are healthy, and who have thus decided, probably wisely, to let things be and not start taking unnecessary drugs or get unnecessary surgeries, just to make other people feel more comfortable with their body shape. There are real health issues connected to obesity, and it's important to keep that in mind when assessing this type of development. This could help a lot of people avoid horrible, lifelong chronic conditions and premature death, and significantly de-stress healthcare systems globally, freeing up resources to address other things. At the same time, obesity, body standards, the way people are treated, including how seriously they're taken by the medical profession based on how they look, these are all fundamental to this conversation as well. And it's impossible to discuss the health side of this conversation without looking at the social and aesthetic and psychological side as well, because although we would ideally be able to look at these types of treatments and recommendations through an undistorted, unbiased psychological lens. That has proven time and time again, across history, to not be terribly realistic. I'd like to recommend today is called Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons by Ben Riggs. This is a newly topical book in some ways because of the resurgence in Dungeons and Dragons playing amongst all sorts of people across all sorts of demographics. It's something that I would highly recommend trying if you've never done so before. It's something I dip in and out of and have across the whole span of my life from teenage years onward until today, in fact. And it's also relevant because of the changing of the company and the corporate structure and ownership model and licensing models attached to Dungeons & Dragons related products and services. And that's basically what this book is about. It's about the beginning of the game itself, the creation of it, the ideas that went into it, how the game itself and the shape it took came to be, but then also what happened on the business side as it was gobbled up by another company and the culture clash therein and the many different personalities involved on the art side, on the business side, on the management side, and so on. It's a far richer and more complex history than you might suspect. I already knew a bit about this, but I learned a whole lot as a consequence of reading this book. So if you're interested in this type of corporate history, focused on this subculture, consider picking up a copy of Slaying the Dragon by Ben Riggs. You can find out more about me and my work at Colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at Let'sKnowThings.com. If you're digging what I'm doing here, you might enjoy my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts, or at OneSentenceNews.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and just Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.